Welcome to the Laura Plantation Podcast. Laura Plantation provides a cultural experience unlike any other in the United States. Here you will find the difference that exemplifies Creole Louisiana. Explore the rigors of 200 years of daily life along with the sobering experience of slavery as it happened at one historic site on the banks of the Mississippi River in the middle of New Orleans plantation country. In this podcast, historian Katie Morlos Shannon and director of PR and marketing Joseph Dunn will be your guides into the Creole world, offering you true, personal, compelling stories of the people who lived, worked, and died at this unique historic site. Real history about real people. Welcome to the Laura Plantation Podcast. This is Season 1, Episode 12. And today we are going to discuss uncovering the real history and real people of Laura Plantation in terms of the documents and the evidence available to us. And we have a special guest with me today. So I'm Katie Morlos Shannon, the historian at Laura Plantation, and I have with me my husband, Robin Shannon, who is a history aficionado, and um, his qualifications uh, stem from the fact that he's had to listen to me talk about history for the entirety of our relationship, which is um, 11 years now. He was also a journalist for a decade and is now a public school teacher. So welcome to the podcast, Robin. Prefer history buff. That's that's the the term that I go for. No, I'm kidding. No. Well, I, I was trying to elevate you a little bit because I feel history buff can sometimes con- uh, have a connotation of, of um, buffoonery, if you will. This um, is true. That's so so we're, I've elevated you. Now, we're going to talk about kind of what led to the founding of Laura Plantation as a historic site and a place where people come and take tours and learn about the history of the the place. So what was kind of the impetus behind choosing Laura and what our wonderful founders, the Marmions, uh, thought and what kind of compelled them to select Laura as the site that of their their um, business and museum? All right. So what was the first written resource or primary source document behind the founding of Laura Plantation? as a historic site, like what, what would you go for first or where they go for first? Well, Norman Marmion, who was the founder of Laura Plantation. <clears throat> so he, he was interested, he and a friend were, uh, received a grant um, for arts-based education to talk about Louisiana folklore. And Norman had so many talents and um, so many interests. Of course, history obviously comes to the forefront as one of his main interests, but he was also a puppeteer and an artist and created amazing puppets. So he and his friend would go around the state and they had a program, um, a show that they would do for children in Louisiana, talking about Louisiana folklore, the folk tales that, um, were really instrumental in in the cult, culture of Louisiana like and a puppet show. It was a puppet show, yes, at four children to teach them, and 
one of the things that they talked about, one of the characters in the show was Compère Le Pen and Compère Bouquet, the, the uh, clever rabbit and um, the, the hyena. And this was from the Senegalese folk tales brought by Africans to Louisiana and that were retold on the plantations and throughout South Louisiana in the Creole language in French, but with so it was an African story. The stories originated in Africa, but then were kind of creolized and told in French. And it became culturally significant to the whole Creole population, Creoles of color, as well as um, white Creoles. And Is there like a modern reference or point on those? I mean, I know what they are. You know what they are. Most people probably know what they are, but like, is there like a... What we would... Po- probably recognize what people would probably recognize them as it's the more popularly known Br'er Rabbit stories, which came out of Georgia through Joel Chandler Harris, who was also a folklorist. So here in Louisiana, the, the, the counterpart here in Louisiana to Joel Chandler Harris in Georgia was a man named Alsay Forche. And he was the compiler of these folk tales, which Norman discovered and, re- and read about. I mean, they had been told for generations. So I, I, when I say discovered, I mean, they, he became familiar with them and decided that they were of great importance. Um, but they had kind of not received the same attention as Joel Chandler Harris's Br'er Rabbit uh, stories. Why? because they were in French um, and Joel Chandler Harris was, his stories were in English. So obviously they were far more accessible to, to people in the United States with the English being the predominant language. And down here in Louisiana for centuries, French was the language that we spoke. So our folklore, even coming from the Africans who brought the stories, what, it was all in French. So people don't really remember that or are as aware of it. The stories are not being told the same way that they were for generations. So Norman kind of resurrected them. And as he was doing that, he became aware of their origins, the place where, I mean, they were told throughout South Louisiana, but the place where Alsay Forche went to gather his material, there's one specific place. And that is Vashery, Louisiana. So Norman became, Norman Marmion became familiar with Vashery, Louisiana. And at that point, it was, it was interesting because there was also a property available in Vashery, which we now know as Laura Plantation. Is that one of the ones that, or do y'all have any documentation that that's one of the ones where he pulled stories from? So... Alsay Forche, who compiled the folk tales, the Louisiana folk tales of Compère Le Pen, he was a family friend of the, the family that owned Laura Plantation. The Duparks and Lacoule family owned Laura Plantation, and they were close friends with the Forches and knew Alsay Forche. And in fact, uh, Laura Lacoule Gore mentions him in her memoirs that she wrote about her life. So that's a great question because 
we know that he went traveled throughout Vashery and that area, and we've since discovered that most of the enslaved community in the Vashery area were interconnected. So you had Laura Plantation on the River Road, and a few plantations down, you had Valker M's Plantation, sometimes known as the St. James Plantation. And he was Creole and very famous and was considered the wealthiest and most elite Creole planter of his time. He was Alcée Forche's grandfather. So Alcée Forche's father helped run the plantation business. Alcée Forche grew up on the plantation. He would have grown up hearing these stories. And we have evidence that enslaved people at Laura Plantation were interconnected with those at Valkyrie Plantation. They intermarried, they had family over there, they were, there were friendships. Um, so there was definitely a communal nature to these stories. And um, I think that that was really what made Norman center his focus on the area of Vashery, because that was um, where Forche pulled the stories from. And that was what Norman's main point of interest was at the time. However, Laura Plantation was under threat. What does that mean? Well, Laura Plantation had sat abandoned, the big house and the, the outbuildings, for uh, several years. And they had been lived in for, for quite a while by um, elderly sisters, uh, the, these old ladies who still spoke French in the house. But then after their death, it sat empty. And Norman became aware of it. But the problem was that the, the, the government, the state government, was considering destroying it because they wanted to build a bridge across the Mississippi River. So they were looking for locations. They were scouting locations for a bridge that would cross from the West Bank to the East Bank and unite the the parish because St. James and St. John and, and St. Charles, most of the river parishes are divided in half by the Mississippi River. And that makes for a difficulty, many difficulties in terms of governing. And so they had ferries, but this bridge would really unite the two sides of the river. And so they were scouting locations and Laura Plantation, where it's located now, seemed like a good location at the time. Why? But I mean, what exactly about where whereabouts in it made it that good of a location? Well, Laura was built on high ground. Um, it didn't really flood ever. And it was just it, it's been a, an area that was populated for hundreds of years. We believe that Native Americans encamped there. So it was it was a good location, didn't flood. Um it's right across from the Gramercy and Paulina areas and kind of closer to where the courthouse is in convent. Um, but it did not work out. What, what, what happened? What happened there? Well, we got lucky because in addition to sitting on high ground, Laura Plantation sits on a fault line. An earthquake fault line? That's right. Okay. okay. There was an earthquake there. When? Back in like um, 20s, teens, 20s, 
somewhere in the early 20th century, uh, there was a tremor that shook the ground. You can read about it in... Um, I feel like you've told me this, but I don't ever remember you actually telling me this. Well, but... that's because they're just there's so much to Laura. It's so rich that you you just can't even remember all the things that that could be touched upon in its its history. So yeah, they're, they actually reported on it in the newspaper and how the workers at Laura at the time were just really disturbed by this. And then uh, geologists and people, you know, they had to have a survey done of, of the area before deciding the location of the bridge. And they discovered that. And there was also, you know, people's testimony, people alive remembered this incident and it was reported on. So they couldn't build a bridge there. Is there any markings of the fault line? Like, do you, do you, does, does, do they know where exactly it is? Or is there any idea of where exactly on the property it runs? That's a great question. And um, I will look into that. But I suspect because they mentioned the work uh, in the, in the article that I saw in the newspaper, they mentioned the workers. I would think it was in the back area further back from the river um, around where the workers um, cabins. And by that point, they were not enslaved. They were, they were the descendants of the enslaved work. Um, just living that, there. Yeah. They were living there and still working the same land as their ancestors. But I just wanted to be very clear when I say workers, I'm not trying to use a euphemism. They weren't right. enslaved. Right, they right, were right. The descendants of the enslaved. But yeah. Um, I mean, and that's just me guessing based on, the newspaper article I read. Well, this was when? When when exactly was this? It was about too? the teens and 20, the 20s. I've got to look up the, the exact date, but it was the early 20th century. Okay. So that, that was really part of the reason why Laura was able to be saved. Because um, as we know, once the government decides it's going to do something, there's really not a way to kind of step in and, and stop that. So fortunately, Laura was... Um, was saved and Norman and his wife, San Marmion decided that that would be the location in which they would talk about the Br'er Rabbit, or not Br'er Rabbit, but the Compare Le Pen stories, the Alsace Forche folk tales that he collected. And it's important to remember that like he is cited as being the author of Louisiana folk tales. He was the person who put it all in writing. These were stories that were uh, told in an oral tradition. Right. They're word of mouth. Yeah. Yeah. And so when you look at the stories he wrote, he, in, in the back, he attributes not all of them, but he'll put something like an old man in Vashery. Okay. So he's not really giving credit necessarily, but he's he's pinpointing a location and kind of pointing you in the right direction. Or I think one was like, um, a young, a young woman named Julia who lived on Britannia Street. So, so he put his own spin on it. No, he recorded. Or... He okay. recorded them as they were told, but he did so uh, sitting down. He would sit down with these these people, and they would tell him the stories, and he would write them down. And he attributes it in a way to them, but not in a way that was really res well respecting them as kind of an author of mm -hmm. the tale he recorded them as you know the, the people who told it to him which i think was standard then in terms of anthropological 
data collection and stuff, but it's unfortunate for us as historians because there is a free man of color that he talked to named Doris uh, Dorless Aguillard, who was from Point Coupe Parish and later moved to New Orleans. And he was one of the sources that he used. He is able to be tracked because Forche provided his last name. But the people who had been enslaved and their descendants who were sources for him, he maintained a degree of an anonymity with them. Um, so Forche gets the credit for these, but really these were passed down for generations and were told to him by others. So that was that was kind of the focus um, that Norman Marmion had when he decided on Laura Plantation. But we were really fortunate in that he discovered another source, another written primary source. What's that? Well, how do you think we've heard, we know so much about the plantation? I mentioned her name earlier. What's the plantation called? Laura. Laura. Now, Laura LaCool Gore, and Laura, uh, you notice her last name is now an American Anglo name, Gore. But she was born on the plantation on Christmas Eve in um, 1860, um, 1861. And she left us a memoir about her life on the plantation and detailing also the lives of her ancestors, her great grandparents and her great aunts and uncles who lived on the plantation and established it as well. She also talks about enslaved people there. Now, this has been a huge resource for us. Most people don't have that degree of resource or uh, at their historic site. I mean, places like Monticello and Mount Vernon, of course, have loads of, of written documents because of who they were owned by, the presidents. But a lot of these historic sites, you don't have extant material like that. But how? Where was that found? That, where was that? That's the mysterious question, isn't it? You don't know? Well, it, yes, I know. If you buy, <laughs> if you buy a historic site. Like, where do you begin, right? You have this, and, and this is not 2023 with Google. This is 1988, 89, early 90s that all this was playing out. So you didn't even really, I mean, the internet was in its very infancy or, or non-existent, not even existent. The army was using it. That's anything. right. I mean, you didn't, you couldn't Google things, y'all. This was an entirely different kind of research that had to be conducted. Al Gore hadn't invented it yet. No, that hadn't happened yet. This is a historically accurate podcast, by the way. So I'm, I'm not endor I'm not endorsing the views of my It's my one and only joke. I'm done. Okay. That's fine. We'll allow it. Um but so so Sand and Norman Marmion now we're starting a business at this property to create um a historic site where there would be tours and education and outreach. So they were very excited to find whatever they could, any kind of sources they could about Laura Plantation. So the key to all of this is the word Laura. When Laura sold the property, when her family sold the property, one of the components was we're going to continue to call it Laura. And the, the family that purchased it, the Wagusbacks, continued to call it the Laura Plantation throughout all of the 20th century. Now, the other thing that was helpful is that Laura was owned by only really two families, the Duparks and LaCools, 
and then the wagon specs. So it wasn't like a property that had been bought and sold so many times that you lose track of who owned it or, you know, what it was. Um, you still have some kind of context. And some Is that kind common of-, of most plantations out here or no? Like it, it really depends. And I would say that um, prior, that's a good question. Prior to the Civil War, many plantations were in the hands of the same family. And then after the war, because of um, economic downturns, they were then bought and owned by, by often by many people, uh, many different families and sometimes corporations. So it really depended. But, you know, in Creole, Louisiana, which is what we're talking about, families were dominant. And so it stayed in the hands of families. If you go elsewhere in the state, like up to Ascension Parish, and you get further into the more Anglo-American kind of areas, you'll find multiple people, partnerships coming in and buying plantations and running corporations and things like that. That was very different than the Creole family business model that the Duparks and the Cools used. So, so we had that going for us. The Marmions actually knew people who had either lived there, been born there, or who had grandparents who lived there and they would go visit. So they knew people who were connected and were able to talk to them and find out information about Laura. And they knew the names of the families that owned it. And Laura LaCool Gore wound up in St. Louis, Missouri. So this was, again, before internet before you could do an internet search. You couldn't go on Google and Google Laura LaCool Gore. So they were going, they had like the phone book out and were going through the phone books and calling people. You know, they had her, um, they had received, someone had given them her book, her um, like a a dress book of uh, friends, family, acquaintances. Laura's? Yes. Names of people with whom she was connected and they were going through and they were calling and they were asking, do you have any information on this property? Do you have any documents? And ultimately they, they struck gold. They found the person with whom Laura had entrusted her memoirs, a close friend. And she had said, you know, you might get a phone call or well, you might, you might hear from someone in Louisiana at some point about these um, and sure enough, they they did. They they lucked out and they found these memoirs, uh, unpublished, handwritten memoirs of a woman born at the plantation that they were now trying to tell the story of. And so that really, from the start, drove everything. It drove the writing of the script, drove the way the tour went, it drove the curation of the the big house and the surrounding outbuildings because they had this crucial resource. I mean, even the design of the gardens, they knew that uh, she, she talked about the gardens and what was in them and the violets and things. And, and so that kind of uh, shaped the way they approached the, even the gardens. So they used whatever they got from the memoirs to pretty much design or redesign the layout of what they would eventually open as a plantation tour. Yeah. So, so you had these two major resources. You had the folk tales from Alsace Fourche, 
and you had Laura's memoirs. And together, that was what shaped the design of the original tour and what would become this really significant historic site that has seen so many visits, uh, visitors, uh, international visitors. Uh, it, it's, it's really taken off. And I think that the reason that it has had the degree of appeal and interest to people is because it's based on stories. Finding Laura's memoir allowed it to be story-based and story-driven. And that was what Norman, Norman Marmion always said, is this is a family, this, this is about family, this is about culture, this is story-driven. And, and we continue that tradition to this day. Because think about it, the Compare Le Pen stories, Laura's memoirs are stories. So when you walk into Laura, you're not going to hear I mean, I mean, you you can ask questions about the furniture, and and there are pieces that are of great worth and merit within the big house and the outbuildings, but what you're predominantly going to hear are stories that shaped Laura, and that in turn had a national um, of national importance as well as it's local. Not so much about the house; it's more about like what happened at the house, right. at the farm. Right. And in fact, I'm so glad you brought that up. While the house is essential and buildings are essential when you're, you know, having a historic site, at the same time, it, it isn't dominated by it. Unfortunately, um, there was a fire at Laura Plantation that, uh, that caused damage to the structure. And the next day after, the, I mean, it was a horrible tragedy and fire departments throughout the area responded. Um, I woke up in Baton Rouge where I was a graduate student at LSU in history and saw it on the news. And I, I cried because Laura Plantation uh, had meant so much to me that I was planning my my thesis, my master's thesis around um, information I'd learned there. So this was 0304. Yeah. Um, so we had the, the, the Marmions had that, they were hit with that. And then they were hit, we were, they were hit with Ka right. Katrina. And, and so we, they suffered a double whammy, really this, this huge setback, but in, um, in, you know, Norman traditional Norman form in, in the way he is just indomitable. He said the next day, he said, all right, we're going to give tours. We're going to open because it's not about the house. It never was about the house. It's we're going to give tours on the grounds and we're going to take them to the, the slave cabins, which they were already taking them out to the slave cabins, but we're going to make that a, a real focus. So they didn't use the house. They just, they, while the house was being restored That's and what renovated. I mean. yeah. No. And it was able to work really well because of the nature of the tour being story-based and not just about the residents of the big house, about people who lived on the entirety of the property because Laura Plantation was the first plantation in Louisiana to touch upon the experience of the enslaved people who lived there. You almost didn't need the house. The house was a backdrop to what y'all were talking about, but more so like yeah, you can go out in the fields and go out to the cabins and walk the garden. Yeah. And that's so that's what he did. And and he made um, stations just like we have stations in the house where we conduct the tour. Um, he, he created stations out back and it worked. It really did. 
And I think that in doing that, it lent itself to an even more well-developed tour later when the house was once again in operation and, and restored and able to be used because it drew attention to the fact that the story out back was just as crucial as the story in the house and that the the nar- whole narrative was interconnected and continues to be to this day. And we have conversations still when we design the tour or talk about um, how we approach interpretation of things at Laura that even the house was integrated. Um, unfortunately, we think of things um, as black and white, big house and quarters, when in fact it was all interconnected. This was a community and you had enslaved people throughout the big house living and working as well as the white family that owned it. So moving forward, it's interesting because we're going to, we keep that in mind, that approach that we were kind of made to take due to a tragedy, in fact, led to something really good. I want to get back to the research really quick too. Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't know how much you want to reveal, but you had the memoirs, you got the stories um, from Porsche. What else? Like where, where did you, where did you, I guess the, the memoir is a nice launching point, but what else? Ah, now that's a really good question because in addition to those two things, we learned about Norman and San Marmion learned about the papers, the family papers of the family of Anne Laura in the Archive National in Paris, France. The family that owned Laura, the Lacouls, the brother, Emile, and the sister, M.A., kind of um, parted ways in the 1890s once the property was sold. And Emile's, his children, who inc- one of whom was Laura, so included Laura and her siblings, remained in the United States. And M.A. Lacoul had married a Frenchman, a, a man of the French nobility, and she and her her children ultimately returned to France and lived out the remainder of their lives in France. So, so much of what the family owned, um, the different artifacts, um, things like portraits, portraits and jewelry and um, just like toilet case. So, so many of the family's treasures, fairly family heirlooms were in France. Um, even the Elizabeth LeCool's rocking chair wound up with family in France. And at a certain point, Emma's children, who were the Delobel family, decided to donate the family papers to the French National Archives. And that's where they were sitting there all these years when the um, HNOC, the Historic New Orleans Collection, began identifying that there was this connection between France and Louisiana, and that a lot of the Creole families in Louisiana wound up in France or with, with half the family or certain family members in France. And so began to realize that a lot of the culture and history and um, important artifacts for Creole Louisiana could be located in France. And so the, the HNOC, the Historic New Orleans Collection, scanned these papers, or, um, or obtained scanned copies 
on microfilm from the Archive National, and you can go to the HNOC and view the papers today uh, at any point. And so Norman and Sand Marmion had access to these papers, and they were they they, they ran the gamut um, of of different types of documents, everything from financial to personal to um, sacramental government, all kinds of. Um, documents that related to the family and to Laura Plantation. So they uh, make copies and the entire file is um, in possession of the Laura Plantation Company. And we reference it all the time. Uh, it Every time we look at it, I think we, we see something else that stands out. So you have everything from um, Elizabeth LeCool's baptismal record, um, deeds and land sales, land grants, bills of sale of enslaved people, um, tax records, personal letters, uh, receipts, financial papers. So all of that also offered a really important lens into what life was like at Laura during the 19th century. And, and it, like I said, it, it even could lend itself to how the house was decorated, what things were included within it. And it gave us a deeper insight into um, the, 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 what was going on in the family. Like, for example, Laura's great uncle, Louis, and his wife, Fanny, she had told us, Laura had told us in the memoirs about their daughter, Elisa, dying in France from some kind of dermat dermatological illness. She had been treated by a doctor for what might have been skin blemishes or, or pimples. Okay. So that's what Laura writes in her memoirs. Well, then if you look at the family papers in the Archive Nationale, you find references to Elisa, her body being transported back from France, from to Louisiana, and um, even a bill to the doctor who treated her. So that's the thing that has been the most remarkable is I think we all are aware that our memories are faulty, right? Mm -hmm. And sometimes even when we're, we're doing our best, we remember things in a flawed way or leaving out details or just a personal bias. And, and sometimes even without any kind of bias, we just genuinely forget things, you know? But Laura is, has been so accurate in what she has written. And we keep finding things that confirm it from paper, family papers, and, and other um, sources. But at that point, those, so, so at, at that point, at the time of the fire, um, which as you said, was what, 2003, 2004, so it was 2004, um, th that those were the three main sources, the folk tales by Alcee Fourche and the memoirs, Laura's memoirs, and then the papers in the yeah. Archive Ness, you know. So what next? Where do you go from there? Well, at that point, when the fire happened, I was a history graduate student and I went uh, with my friend who was also a graduate student in history to Laura Plantation. I said, and we, we said, how can we help? What can we do? And at that point, I mean, we did everything from weeding the garden to 
cleaning off um, clocks that had been um, covered in soot in the fire or watching Norman, who, as I said, was a man of so many talents, a true Renaissance man, laying out bricks. Um, And we did what we could. And at that time, they had done a tremendous job in acquiring these sources and allowing it to shape the narrative. But in terms of more research they were kind of i mean just trying to restore the place and and keep it um running and well preserved but the wonderful thing is that san marmion who um norman's wife who is also co-founder um and curator of laura plantation she began to be more interested because there was always an interest in the lives of the enslaved, but but that was the next piece of the puzzle because researching enslaved people requires a specific kind of skill set and a real tenacious degree of digging and searching. So she began to want to know more about them and take that next leap, that next step. And she uh, contacted me. In fact, she first spoke to me about it at a bonfire party. Um, of course, we, we used to have our annual bonfire party at Laura Plantation. And then the last one we had was um, a memorial honoring Norman Marmion's life this past December. So it was, um, it really is interesting to think that that so much of what we do evolves around this bonfire party. And she took me aside and said, I know that you are, um, I mean, I do research of all kinds, but one of my specialties was about enslaved communities. And she said, I would like to work with you. We can work together and tell the stories of the enslaved community at Laura Plantation. So that was the next step, the kind of the next frontier in research. They were already telling stories about enslaved people at the plantation, but it was predominantly based upon the stories told in Laura's memoir, which of course are greatly shaped through the lens of Laura, through the perspective of Laura. And Laura was an elite white daughter of a plantation owner. So we needed sources that were more objective or coming from a different angle. And that was what she contacted me about. And ultimately, we began work together in June of 2011. And we've been working hard at it for, my goodness, like 12 years now, more than a decade. So um, I think that that would make, what do you think? Would you like to hear more about that? I know I would. You hear about it every day, don't you? You've lived it because that was June 2011 and we started dating in January 2012. So in fact, you you weren't there for the very beginning, but well, you've been there for most of much it. The extent of our relationship. Um, yeah, um, that is true. Has has been um, so much of our our relationship and our own history as a family and as a, as a couple have, uh, it's it's centered around laura and the research and our children are now learning and and growing um and part of the joint interest that brought us together it was the joint interest i I think so we were able to hold up a conversation together yeah and about intellectual things (laughs) well i i i think that it's it can be intellectual but it's also just the ordinary 
everyday lives of people who came before us and in the past. And I think we're drawn to that too. Um, and that's what this podcast is really about is uncovering these stories of people who may not be seen as extraordinary in the world's eyes, but who actually lived rather extraordinary lives when you think about the time period in which they lived and, and what they endured and lived through. And I, I, I keep uncovering things in my research to this day where I'm just astonished by what they endured or um, certain elements of their story that I haven't discovered yet. So we, we, we continue on and we'll talk more about that research and the sources that we found with Sand, Marmion and I working together in our next episode. Sounds good. You feel like coming back? Yeah. Join us next time. Yeah. Yes. Join us next time for um, an in-depth conversation about uncovering the real people and real history of Lower Plantation, the enslaved population, the enslaved community, and the records that San Marmion, San Marmion and I used to um, research them and to incorporate their story into the broader narrative of Laura Plantation. Thanks so much for listening. We really appreciate it. And we hope you've gained some kind of insight from this conversation. If you enjoyed the conversation, um, please leave us a uh, review. Uh, reviews help spread the, new, the word to other listeners and may impact how who gets to hear this podcast and, and how it's distributed. So thank you so much and um, have a great day. We'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us. We invite you to visit Laura Plantation, where you can walk in the footsteps of the people you've learned about today. For more information, see our website, www.lauraplantation.com. Our tour is based on thousands of pages of primary source documents amassed through tenacious research spanning three decades. At Laura, you will walk in the footsteps of the people who made history. Be in the rooms where it all happened. Join us again next week to hear real history about real people.